Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Because we are talking about a better story. And last week we kicked off the series talking about uh, the foundational story of the Christian faith, the story of creation, and that we are created on purpose for a purpose. Today I want to talk about something that isn't so glorious. And it's a word that makes many of us bristle. It's a word that has got the church in a lot of trouble in recent years. And it's a word that we don't necessarily like to think that the preacher's going to talk about when we come into church. And it's this word, sin. Sin is not a nice thing to talk about. Sin, sin is one that we'd rather talk about love, we'd rather talk about grace and forgiveness and hope and freedom and peace and joy and, and the salvation that's available in Jesus who gave his life for us. We don't like to talk about sin. Sin has become a hugely unpopular word in our culture. If I take you back to England in 1741, there was a, a growing revival and the preachers, the revivalists, their key message was sin and the wrath of God. One of the most famous sermons given in England in the 18th century that you can still find copies of in Kurong and printed online was a sermon by the no, known by the name of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, it's received a lot of criticism and some of that rightly so because I don't think we want to talk about an angry God. But listen to the words that Jonathan Edwards preached that day. He said, O oh, sinner! It's to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. That you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Now imagine if that's what I preached here regularly or posted on social media as a transcript of the sermon or put up on the podcast. I'd be publicly outed. I'd be berated. I'd probably find myself on a news channel somewhere, even though I'm an unknown. But this is the kind of rhetoric that people today don't like to think about. But as Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, there were people interrupting him from the congregation not to challenge him, but they yelled out, how can we be saved? Could you guys just yell out some encouragement occasionally when I'm preaching? <laughs> I just want to feel like I'm hitting some level of engagement that People are just falling on their knees and saying, how can we be saved? But Jonathan Edwards gets up and preaches sin and people start yelling out in desperation, how can we be saved? Fast forward to the late, 1970s, uh, late 1950s. Sorry, in 1959, American evangelist Billy Graham did a, a many month long tour throughout Australia preaching the gospel. Now, Billy's message wasn't as strong as that of Jonathan Edwards, but he did speak about the scourge of sin. But he talked about sin in light of a saviour that wants to bring us freedom and wants to break us free from the power of sin. An incredible gospel message based on the truth of God's word. Now, Billy Graham was preaching with such uh, anointing on him that stadium records in this country were broken for people to turn up to hear him preach. The MCG welcomed 143 
thousand people to the Billy Graham crusade in 1959, which to this day remains the largest crowd that has ever gathered at the Melbourne cricket ground. And when you think about the cult of Australian football, that's an incredible stat that will never be broken. It'll never be broken because they'll never, workplace health and safety will never allow that many people in one venue ever again. So thank you to the bureaucracy that we live in these days. Billy Graham will hold the record forever. But 143,000 people. I've watched little snippets of Billy Graham's message thinking, what was it? But there was just something about the message that he brought that people stream to. And tens and hundreds of thousands of Australians gave their life to Jesus because of the gospel message that Billy Graham spoke. Fast forward to about 30, 35 years ago now when I was uh, coming into the youth group and when we'd go on camps. So I grew up in a time where we'd go on youth camps and I was part of uh, the Western Districts Baptist Association camps. It's part of Dubbo Baptist Church and often they'd just get someone in there that had a really hard luck story about all the terrible things they'd done and how they found themselves at their absolute last and it was when they discovered that they were a sinner that needed saving and they discovered the grace of God, everything turned around and many, many young people put their faith in Jesus because the message of sin was presented so clearly. Let me bring you to 2021. Sin as a word and sin as a concept has disappeared from our culture. Journalist Brian Appleyard says this, sin doesn't really exist as a serious idea in modern life. Sin doesn't really exist as a serious idea in modern life. Talk to most people that don't have a faith understanding, and sin is one of those things that often, when they encounter a person of faith, that they talk about with the inverted commas. Am I a sinner that needs to repent? It's not popular language anymore. It's actually an offensive concept to suggest that anyone would be sinful. And so sin as a concept and sin as an understanding has disappeared from the understanding and the narrative of our culture. What does that mean for us as the church? It means that the way we talk about the hope of Jesus has to change, not to adjust the truth, but to speak now to a culture that doesn't think they're sinners in need of God's grace. You can't preach you're a sinner in need of God's grace when someone actually doesn't see themselves as a sinner. Author Alan Mann says this, individuals no longer live with a sense of sin or guilt in the way that many classical models of atonement require in order for them to be successfully communicated. But what's atonement? It's a big word, but atonement is the story of how Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice so that your sin could be forgiven. It's a core concept and understanding of the Christian gospel. But to preach it like that when people don't see themselves as a sinful person, but just as a good person that's at fault occasionally and made some mistakes, you see our culture has actually put new words in for the word sin. I made a mistake. I did something wrong. I made an error of judgment. Something bad went down, but it wasn't my fault. You see, the thing that has followed this sense of sin disappearing is also the sense of owning the blame. So sin is an unpopular concept, and it's disappeared for two reasons. One, because we live in a day and an age where truth has become relative. What does that mean? 
Gateway Ormo followers of Jesus, you can have your truth. If that works for you, that works for you. You go for it. That's awesome. Just don't tell me about it because I got my truth and what works for me is all that matters. So we live in a culture where truth has become relative. In other words, my truth and your truth can look different as long as it works for you and as long as in your truth no one gets hurt and in my truth no one gets hurt, it's okay that we see the world different. It's actually a flawed logic when you dig deep enough because people that actually want to carry that line of truth is relative and you can't, there's, there is no truth, it's just what's true for you and what's true for me. Well, I'm not long into their story, be confronted with people where they realise, well, the truth that they lived wasn't actually a great truth. You see, if you live a story that says truth is relative, then you've got to suggest that, well, when someone's truth says that you can go and kill innocents for the sake of grabbing power, well, is that okay? Because that's their truth. But we live in a culture that says that truth is relative. The second thing is we live in a culture that has no sense of God and without a sense of a greater power, there is no authority to determine that which is right and wrong. So we're left to our own devices. So for most unbelievers, sin is a word only used in church and a word that only makes sense in light of a belief in God who defines the boundaries of what is right and wrong and what allows humanity to flourish. But that's the story we believe. That God has designed us in a particular way and knows how we flourish. And because of that, there's boundaries that he asks us to live within. See, the problem with the narrative of sin and when you try and talk about a better story and the idea of sin comes into it is people have just reduced sin to a sense of behaviour management. Sin is purely defined by our behaviour. But if we go to the biblical story, we actually see that sin runs much deeper than that. In the original sense, when sin entered the human story, two great themes emerged that have actually become the core of most things that we now see outworked in terrible behaviour. And it's this, one mankind decided to rebel against the good world that God had put in place and the way that God asked us to care for it. So rebellion is part of the human story. But more than that, and one of the greatest sins is when we seek to find our purpose, our value, and our meaning in anything less than God. The Bible uses a big word for this. It's idolatry. But if you go back to the original story, creation is the story of how God, the infinite, perfect, creative one, made you as an image bearer of himself and invited you into an intimate relationship where in him and in that relationship you find value, purpose, meaning and intent. You are not a cosmic accident. You are not an afterthought. You are not here just to serve someone else's purposes. You were created with the full energy of the created God to be an image bearer. That gives you value beyond anything else that you'll find and in any other story that you'll find on planet Earth. But if you don't believe that story, you suddenly start looking for value and meaning and purpose in other things. And so you look at a relationship as the thing that's going to give you value, meaning and purpose. Or you look at possessions as a thing that are going to give you value, meaning or purpose. Or you look at other deities that you've created that take your worship and worship, we don't worship them with our hands raised singing songs to them, but we worship them by giving them the full attention of our time, our treasure, and our talent. That's how you know if you're worshipping something. If something in your life has got to the ultimate place, 
It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing that you've just made an ultimate thing and you've bowed the knee and you give it all your attention, affection, your time, your talent, and your treasure. When we do that, we seek purpose and value in something other than God. And most people in our culture can't articulate or stomach or understand the concept of sin, but everyone can understand from their own experience that there are some things in this world that just aren't right. They don't like to talk about sin, but everybody can sit back and think something doesn't make sense. There's things in this world that are not aligned. And so as we, God's people, find ways to share a better story in our culture, the message we bring isn't about behavior modification because it's an argument you'll never win against people that don't subscribe to your belief system. But the message that we carry is that there is a better story, that the brokenness, the incongruence of this painful world, the pain that you see, you feel, and experience, Here's our story. That was never the intention. That was never God's design. You were created on purpose, with a purpose. God's blueprint for your life was always about flourishing. And we stop flourishing when we look for value, meaning, and contentment in things that are less than God himself. That is the better story that we have to share. Jesus models this. He go back to a culture where Sin and law was very, very clear. But one day he meets a Samaritan woman, someone that lived by a slightly different set of understanding and rules. And she's at a well. And Jesus doesn't just want to address her behavior, even though it comes up in the conversation. But Jesus speaks to her behavior to identify her need. He says to her, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're right. You've actually got five. And the person that you're with right now isn't the person that you're married to. Jesus confronts her behavior, but in confronting her behavior, it's not just to make her feel bad about her lifestyle, it's to identify that in her there's obviously a yearning and a chasing after something that is not fulfilling her, because she's just bouncing from relationship to relationship to relationship, and everyone comes to an end, and she still hasn't found contentment, happiness, joy, and so Jesus says, I know you don't have one husband, you've got five, you've, you've got five, and then in the midst of this, they have an incredible conversation of Jesus saying, can you give me a drink? She goes, and Jesus says, if, if you knew who it was that asked, you'd be asking me for a drink because what I have to give you is living water. See, this is, the, this is the key, I think, to engaging our culture in the conversation of sin. He isn't going in all guns blazing saying, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this. The Bible says, the Bible says we'll never win any argument with someone that doesn't believe in the Bible. But if you walk in and say, you know that pain you feel? The brokenness you feel? You know how right now you know that there's something wrong with the world and you've chased wealth and you're still depressed and you chased relationship after relationship, you still feel isolated and lonely. You made it to the top of your career pile yet still you don't feel filled and content. I want to talk about all that's wrong with that story. I just want to introduce you to someone who can give you value, meaning, and contentment. See, the better story we share is that there is an answer to the mess and the brokenness in this world. In other words, when it comes to talking with people, the better story isn't just stop it. 
And do you know the emptiness? You know the depression that you feel despite your excess? You know the pain you feel because your kids don't want to see you because you always had more time for the work to be done at the office than for your family? You know the loneliness you feel even though every night there's someone different sharing your bed? It's all because you're looking for fulfillment, contentment and value in things that never have the capacity to offer it to you. So let me tell you a better story. It's a story where the creator, the one who knows you, that wants you to flourish, has come and confronted your sin. Because there is a word for that feeling. There is a word for that mess. And it's our culture doesn't like it. But it's a, it's a word because in our culture, a mistake doesn't always go to the gravity of what we experience, does it? And there needs to be a new word. And the Bible gives us that word. And it is the word sin. And even though it's an unpopular word in our culture, it is still very much at the heart of the Christian message. So let me take you to the story as it's told in the scriptures from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? A little bit of context. God created people, put his best creative energy intent, gave them value, meaning, purpose, put them in a relationship with him and put them in a perfect space where they were in, uh, invited to tend to and care for. But God said there's just one boundary in this relationship. There's a tree in the garden I'm putting you, or don't we eat, eat of the fruit of that tree. So the serpent comes and said, did God really say that? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, who, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let me just out of this very short passage that goes back. It's a hard passage to get our hand around. There's lots of pictures that don't make sense to us in our understanding of the world today, but it gives us a great theology for sin. And let me just take you through it because if we have an understanding of what God intends for us, it gives us uh, the desire to actually stay away from the things that are going to diminish our life. The first thing I want to say is this, sin often clothes itself as good, pleasing and desirable. I think for too long, Christians have tried to say to people, don't do it because it's bad for you. And then people do it and go, well, it didn't feel as bad as you said it was going to. You told me not to, you told me not to kind of get too physical in my relationships too early, but it didn't feel as bad as you told me it was going to feel. Sin has a way of masquerading itself as good, pleasing, and desirable. Listen to the words of uh, the woman in the garden. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree that God had told them not to eat was good for food. She saw that it was good for food. More than that, she saw that it was pleasing to the eye. And we've got to protect our eyes. They can be like gateways to a whole bunch of messed up stuff. And it was also desirable for gaining wisdom. See, this is what sin does. Most people don't sin because they go, oh, that looks like it's going to be really painful. I should go do it to be a rebel. Most people sin because they go, I don't see what's wrong with that. It actually looks like it's a good option here. And in the garden, we get a picture of what sin's actually like because the serpent says, well, why'd God say you can't eat it? Doesn't look like any other different tree. Why don't you just go and partake in the goodness of the fruit of that tree? The woman goes, I see what he's saying. The fruit looks good. See, more than that, it looks really good. Actually, it's a really good looking fruit. And see, right now what sin does, it actually blinds us from the perspective of everything else. Because right now the man and the woman are in the garden filled with abundance. Yet sin captures their attention on the one thing that's actually going to bring destruction into their life. So often God has so much good for us, but we get so caught up on the things that don't matter or the things that are going to be destructive to us that we allow the rest of the perspective to be diminished. I don't know what the garden looked like, but I get a picture of a garden that was just abundant with trees and abundant with food and abundant with goodness, yet sin captured the attention of this couple because it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable. Just because something promises goodness pleasure and it looks desirable doesn't mean we should touch it we've got to be aware we've got to be on our guard because sin has a capacity to masquerade as good pleasing and desirable the second thing we learn from the story of genesis 3 is that sin draws us away from a relationship of intimacy with god and others Verse 8, the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord the God, their God among the trees. We have a perspective, I think, at times that says that when we mess stuff up, God distances himself for us. God never is far from you. The only thing that's changed is your perspective towards him. I just get a picture in this story that it was God's habit to go for an afternoon walk in the garden and hang out with those that he'd created, that he loved, that he put his whole creative intent into. And on this particular day, God, as he does, just goes for a walk in the garden, but he can't find them. So God yells out, where are you? And their first reaction is, well, we heard you coming, so we hid. See, Right then, intimacy is robbed in the relationship with God. But not because God's taken himself out of the picture, but because we actually withdraw from God. It's a really important thing for us to understand. God has never withdrawn himself from your story because of anything you've ever done. Sometimes sin's the thing, or sin is the thing, that actually robs us of the intimacy of that relationship, not because God's withdrawn, but because we withdraw because of the shame, the guilt, the pain, the brokenness that we carry inside, the narrative of sin that says, well, you've mucked up again. You don't deserve the grace of God. You don't deserve the goodness of God. You don't deserve to be in the presence of Jesus. If that's how you feel, welcome to a room full of people that are exactly the same as you. Yeah. 
Not one of us here deserves to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with the Lord God, but he has never withdrawn himself from us. I don't want to get into the back end of this series, but it's a better story for a reason. Because God never left our story. But sin draws us away from intimacy with God. Sin, number three, allows shame to enter our story. Hear what they say again. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Let me just take you back to Genesis chapter 2 for me to give a little context to this verse. At the, at the pinnacle of Genesis 2, the story of the creation of humanity, the final verse says this, and they were naked and they knew no shame. They felt no shame. They were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, this is kind of a tricky thing for us to teach in kids because, you know, how do we talk about that? But, but, but I don't think the picture of nakedness here was just a physical picture. It's actually a picture of they were naked. There was nothing that needed to not be known, seen, or exposed. Everything of the heart, everything of the mind, everything was known and seen. When they say they were naked, it means that they were fully open and vulnerable before God. That is the picture of how God created you to be, to be in complete relationship with him with no barriers, nothing in between. But as soon as sin enters the picture, so does shame. And it's only when shame enters the picture do we recognize that which makes us vulnerable. And so in the story of creation, when sin enters the picture, suddenly they go, whoa, I don't want to be exposed anymore. So what do you do? You go and hide and you cover that. That's what sin does. We do it all the time. We like to cover our own sin, don't we? But shame can be the very thing the enemy wants to use to keep you from drawing near to God and others. Our culture may not understand sin, but it sure understands shame. So sin allows shame to enter our story. And following on from that, sin in your life will never be dealt with while ever you deflect the blame. Verse 12, the man said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Adam steps forward, got this, got this Eve. I'll explain it all to him. My fig leaves, we're all good. God, it's her. She did it. She made me do it. She told told me a rotten story. I never would have done this, but it was her. And so then he steps away and God says, what do you got to say for yourself? It was the serpent. He told me, deceived me. He told me to eat it. We live in a culture that has become experts at blame. Something happens, and it might be tragic, it might be an accident, it might be something, I'm not even talking about sin now, I'm just talking about something that doesn't work well for us, and we go, well, someone's got to be responsible for that, because it certainly wasn't me. I know I thought that I could jump from the second story and not hurt myself, but I did hurt myself, and I want to find out who's responsible for my pain right now. (laughs) We live in a culture full of of blame. It's our instant reaction is we want to protect ourselves by finding someone else that takes the heat of that which we have done. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us because it's found in the very fabric of the story of sin entering the picture. Adam, who told you that you were naked? What have you done? Have you eaten of that fruit that I told you not to eat of? Yeah, I did, but... but Really, God, it's not really my fault. You know what? If you really want to be free from the power of sin in your life, 
All of us need to at times take responsibility for that which we do. We've got to stop blaming everybody else. We've got to stop blaming, you know, oh, they, they told me to be okay. Your personal responsibility is part of the story that is in the very beginning that people tried to deflect the blame. And we're all really good at doing it. We're all really good at deflecting the blame. But sin in your life is not going to be dealt with while ever you deflect the blame. And in some circumstances, other people are to blame. But even in those circumstances, sometimes the best question to start with is, what do I need to own in this? What was my part in it? How did my words not help the situation? Was that a wise email to send at 11.30 that night in the midst of it? Did that, did that help or did that hinder the situation? All those people that I told at church about what was wrong with that other person, what they've done to me, did that? Is that what the Bible calls gossip or is that just me processing verbally with 48 other people? You know, unless we can confront that which we own, while ever we deflect the blame, sin will never be dealt with in our life. Here, yeah, the band to come and join me. If God invites you to confront your sin, not so he can get at you, but because the invitation he has for you is so much better. But sometimes the first step in our freedom is acknowledging that we too are sinners in need of the grace of God. So we live in a culture that doesn't want to talk about sin. We live in a culture that doesn't want to entertain that it's a concept that should ever be spoken about. We live in a culture where it's abhorrent to use that word and, and make any reference to it. But all of us know that deeper there's something that's not right. And the story of the scripture says, let, let, let's just name it for what it is. It was the moment that humanity decided they knew how to do things better than the one who created them. It was the moment humanity decided to rebel against the good order that God put in place. It's the moment humanity decided to seek value, meaning, purpose, and contentment in things other than God himself. And whenever we do that, the behaviors that follow that are always going to be broken and messed up. But sin is not... The, it's, it's funny talking about sin when we talk about a better story. But the better story is this. That God never left the picture despite your sin. He never turned his back. He never walked away. You know the, the most incredible act of grace in the Genesis 3 story is at the very end of it, it says that God sewed together garments for them to wear. God actually gave them something to cover that which they now knew was nakedness and shame. Why'd God do that? Why'd God do that? It's crazy. God at that point should have said, well, the human experiment is a failed one. I might as well save myself and generation after generation and generation of others the mess of this broken, messed up world because, man, it's only going to get messier. And I just can't give up on my creation. I want them to experience and to know the fullness of, 
of who they are and what they were created for. I want them to find their purpose in me. I want them to experience my grace. I want them to know the true and full definition of love. I want them to know that they were built with eternity in their hearts to experience the goodness of eternity with me. And so because I want that for them, I'll help them navigate the mess that they've created for themselves. And the better story is the one that God never gives up on your story. No matter what sin you carry, you've perpetrated, you've experienced, God doesn't leave. He doesn't come to condemn. He comes to help you find a way back to that which you were always intended to be. Mark Sayers says this, every renewal and revival begins with people who reach such a moment, who come to the end of themselves, discovering the depth of their own sin and the immensity of a holy God who is intent on removing rebellion, evil and ill from the world. Yet who sent his son to die upon the cross to invite us to be on his side of remaking of the world. That's the invitation. We don't gloss over it. We don't blame others for it, but we own it. We experience God's grace. We become part of telling a better story. Hey, Lord, I just, I want to thank you that in what is a topic that we don't like to talk about or think about, Lord, for some of us, this topic just brings up a whole bunch of painful memories. Some of us avoid church on days like today because every time we go there, it reminds us of that thing that we did back there or those words that we spoke or that that life-altering moment where brokenness, mess, destruction and sin became a really deep part of our story. But God, as we understand your heart we see that sin is never the end that sin is just when we choose to seek value and meaning and contentment in other things and not you and you are so gracious that you always just stand and call us back your heart for us is not destruction but his hope and his life and his goodness and his eternity Lord I want to pray for those of us here today that have been living in some ways that we know are contrary to the way that you call us to live. And pray that you give us the courage to confront it, to own it, to confess it, and to repent of it. And repentance is actually turning and walking in a different direction. So God, it's not just a, an attitude of the heart. It's actually going to be something we're going to have to put hands and feet on. God, you only ever want us to confront our sins so we can be free from the power of us the courage to do that today, we pray, Lord, your precious name. Amen. Come on, church, let's stand on our feet. We're going to sing. It's a song that says, amazing grace, amazing grace. We are broken vessels, but it says amazing grace. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family, and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services, because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.